born from our experiences as explorers and forged by a commitment to the positive change we want to see in the world. This is the Adventure Activist Podcast. I mean, I've always been curious about, through other cultures, learning really about myself. Nothing in the mountains bothered me the way the earthquake did. It's a great study in just human nature and realizing our, my own human nature, their human nature, and everybody's just trying to do the best they can for their own family. Greetings and welcome to the Adventure Activist Podcast. I'm your host, Terry O'Connor. This is a place for accomplished athletes, inspiring adventurers, and influential activists to share their journeys and life discoveries. Through their stories, we hope to deconstruct how we all can add more meaningful value to the world and do some good with our passion for adventure. This is episode three with international guide, photographer, and athlete, David Morton. We'll discover how David found his calling in the mountains and the characteristics that contributed to his successful career as a guide on the highest peaks of the world. In the setting of the high Himalaya, our focus will shift to the discovery of an unmet need and the calling for a different sort of journey. We will recount the mountain tragedies and the ensuing insights that led him and partners to start the successful nonprofit, the Juniper Fund, whose mission is to provide assistance to individuals, families, and communities adversely impacted by their work for the mountain-based adventure industry. Some of their successes have included the provision of funds to cover living expenses for families left behind by the death of mountain workers in the Himalaya, supporting vocational programs to help the widowed move on with a viable income, and overall increasing awareness of the adverse impact of the dangerous but growing mountain tourism industry on indigenous culture. Listen, be inspired, and I hope you enjoy. Well, thanks, David, for inviting me to your home and taking me out to get some Thai food and using your office space to hang out here in, in Seattle and chat a little bit and catch up. But um, I guess just to start out for, for people that don't know you, we won't go into all the, the details of your background, but uh, um, you did grow up here in Seattle. And we talked a little bit briefly about that just here on Mercer Island. And I, I have my obviously my own personal story of how I got attached to the mountain environment and doing things in the mountains and adventuring outside and how it's become a big part of my life. And is that something that kind of happened accidentally for you or was there a person or can you think of like a was there a moment do you think that kind of started to give you the, the hook to get you in the mountains and do what you do now it was definitely growing up in my family my parents were from the midwest from kansas city they moved out here when i was five and um I thank them every year for the fact that they <laughs> moved from the Midwest. <laughs> and uh, they, you know, they they were not big outdoorsy people. Although they skied, um, they loved being outdoors. They loved hiking. They loved camping. And so, from that experience, I basically, you know, just started. They they, they came here specifically to get into the outdoors, even though they were sort of recreationists. Uh-huh. And so. We, we did a lot of camping. I ran around with my brother and my two sisters when we were kids. Um, a lot of car camping, a lot of hiking. And for whatever reason, I just really took to it compared to my siblings. Um, and I was always like, 
you know, it's probably because I was the oldest kid, but I was always the one that was like wanting to get to the top and I was always loving pushing myself hiking. And these are stories my parents tell me that, you know, I have great memories of, but they say, oh yeah, it was clear that you were attached to it pretty early on. And then I remember hanging out at Cougar Rock Campground when my parents each climbed Mount Rainier with oh, yeah. I when they, um, yeah, like my dad just a, f- a couple weeks after Mount St. Helens blew up. Um, and then my mom, you know, they were both in their 30s, but I remember really well going up to greet them as they came down and that sort of burned a little uh, ember, you know, in me in terms of watching them come down. And be right by the right by the river, being able to look up and see the mountain yeah, totally. right there on a clear yeah, day. Right? So, you know, we had an active, I had an active upbringing. Um, I remember being in middle school and watching shows on tv about people climbing in yosemite and that was my very first exposure to like oh wow what are these guys doing yeah like amazing what is that you know these guys are putting things in the rock and upside down and you know so they seeing that sort of opened my eyes and then it wasn't until um i was a senior in high school that i actually did any real climbing Right. Um, you know, so nowadays super late, you know? Yeah. It was about the same for me. I was like a senior and then freshman in college really. And then there was something, it sounds similar to me. Like there was a curiosity cause it just, it seemed like an interesting way to experience the environment and be outside and to go these places that I could just not imagine people could ever get to. But in my personal experience, there was a moment in college when I took some time off and I won't go the details of the story, but it just really clicked to me like this was being in the mountains and these really long I had a couple really long days out I was volunteering spending some time working in New Zealand took like a year off from college because I was trying to like find my way and I just I I never had felt so focused ever in my life and there was something about just the situational awareness that was required of me to be able to navigate in the mountains in a foreign environment with clearly some inherent risk to activity, especially being brand new and young. And, and that's when that four to six months of my life, I I just realized, wow, there's, there's something about this. Like I'm I'm probably going to be doing this for the rest of my life somehow. (laughs) Um, and was there like a a first trip that you did that you can kind of have that feeling that you came back and you're just, you know, it's like that drug. It's like you get that taste of it and you're like, I got to go back and get that again because of that, that piece I, of focus. Yeah. I mean, I had, um, so I grew up ski or ski racing around here too. Okay. So I was in the mountains so a lot, that. grew up ski racing, went to, and really when I went, I went to university of Washington and I took the first winter off and went and lived at Snowbird. Mm. And that was my first taste of like, Oh wow. Like, I'm doing something a little bit different. I feel like I should be in school, but I really want to be in the mountains. And I started meeting people that were professionally involved with the mountains. Um, you know, and I was just working at a shop, but um, started meeting people that were older photographers that were involved with that. And that was my first exposure or my first feeling of like, oh, wow, I, the, like these are sort of my people. Mm-hmm. This is, I kind of belong here. And so it, re- it was really hard to go back to school, even though I was. I, I was a really, I was a pretty focused student um, and pretty into school when I was into it. You know, yeah. I did kind of ebb and flow, but um, but I was really attentive student when I was into it. So I felt a lot of responsibility to get back and finish school. But I would go back. I went back to Snowbird a couple 
seasons. And so I took those winters off and really felt torn by sort of making it back to school and finishing school and then really wanting to be in the mountains among people that were actually making a living doing that. And, um, and so that was sort of my first exposure where it was like, oh, wow, you know, maybe somehow I could make a living, you know, doing this. And during those years is when I really started to do more rock climbing. There was a bad mm-hmm. snow year. The first year I was at Snowbird and couple long time snowbird climbers skiers that were 10 years older took me out climbing a little cottonwood yeah. and so i was totally psyched then and then from those those exposures i'd come back to the northwest and be in school at university of washington and i'd go solo a couple mountains in the north cascades and that was when i really sort of felt like oh you know part of me belongs here especially going on the solos by myself yeah, on glaciers right. and really feeling like um, super passionate about it at that point. Right. And then why the big mountains? Like, um, not all climbers think about climbing big mountains. Obviously some people are happy to be at the crag, you know? And Yeah. You know, and I, I, for better or worse, I look back and I've, I was never that, that ultra focused climber in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, notching up the grade and doing exactly what it took training wise and focus wise to keep notching up the grades quickly. I, I always have been sort of more of a adventure experiential sort of wanting to see the world, wanting to know other cultures, wanting to know the other, wanting to see new places, wanting to explore. And so I've always been geared, you know, slightly more towards that than really, um, pushing the grade you know mm-hmm. um i look back and wish i had been that way a little more but but really it's been all about the the experience and and seeing different places and so naturally it was like oh well i'm gonna go to the andes and then eventually maybe i'll get to the himalaya and you know so is that as it sort of naturally progressed it, it right it um you know i got there and then from that point on it was um it was sort of a natural progression and guiding to be in Nepal, really immersing myself in the Nepal culture and, and learning a lot and getting pretty knowledgeable about the um, political history, the cultural history of all the different ethnicities. And then um, sort of Everest in particular didn't really even come onto my radar until I started spending time with Sherpas and then saw how much how much of a integral part it is to their mm-hmm. lives and culture. And only through some seasons there did I start to find it compelling and mm-hmm. it was mostly through the locals experience. So. Yeah. Why do you think, I guess to put it in short terms, I mean, why do you think you cared to spend time with them or be curious about them? Cause I think both you and I know there's plenty of people that go to Nepal and, and pass through and not really spend time talking to the locals or learning about their daily, you know, uh, daily living, what they do in the off season and, yeah, I I um I kind of felt that way. I mean, when I was in South, I speak Spanish fairly mm-hmm. well, and so when I was in South America, I always felt that way about the local indigenous people, and I'd really immerse myself in that when I was doing more guiding in South America. But then as I got to the Himalaya, I I sort of had that same connection with the locals there, and I mean, I've always been curious about through other cultures learning really about myself, and so I've always had just a lot of interests and. In, other cultures. When I first went to university, I thought I'd major in cultural anthropology. I already, you know, I was that kid that looked through National Geographic's mm-hmm. all day long and wanted to explore and wanted to, 
you know, know about other people. And so it was that combined with the uh, Nepalis and Sherpas and Sherpas particularly that really seeing their culture, seeing um, a lot of different parts about it, a lot of levity, a lot of joy. Um, certainly there's a lot of, I mean, it's not just joy and it's yeah. not romanticized, but, but really um, accessible people in terms of outward emotions and expressive and um they've they you know they're there's certainly a um can you remember an example of like one of your very first trips there where that you felt that like um i felt time? that way i felt that the way through a lot of the you know working with males mostly and it's such a male world and yeah. you, you're working with a lot of male sherpas and just the way that they gave each other trouble and sort <laughs> yeah. of bonded and, you know, they were really tight as a yeah. unit. And, um, but then gave, I think there was always a lot of respect for, uh, their wives and women in their lives. And so they, in, in general, and their seniors, the, and their and seniors, the Sirdars yeah. and the ones who've been doing it for years and years before them. Yeah, yeah totally. Absolutely. There's a lot of respect for each other, but also really playful. And I think that they're actually pretty incisive in terms of like giving each other shit and like when digging when, at when each the other. person needs to be given shit yeah. yes yeah and so i just you know i think that they i mean i think that as i've always thought as opposed to a lot of other cultures in the world that i've been exposed to and uh, been around through the mountains the sherpas are really part part of the reason i think that the tourism over there has been so popular is that they are yeah. pretty accessible to westerners in a way that there's definitely some sort of connection um and respect for each other that has to do with some qualities of their of of how they're brought up their approachability yeah i mean their their willingness to talk to you to smile at you and i mean even if you're it's hard to not engage with a sherpa or a nepali even in Kathmandu because they're they're looking you right in the eye they want to talk to you or they're curious or they're smiling um even if you try to just pass through and like make no eye contact it's pretty hard <laughs> yeah absolutely and they're you know they're, certainly they're guarded in some ways and keep a lot in but but on a on a daily interactive basis yeah. and just socially super open and wonderful and right and i guess that goes back a little bit to somehow you described your your process and learning and in, in climbing as actually looking more for or concentrating more on the experience and the process of the trip versus kind of the outcome. I mean, you're making yourself available to those opportunities to interact with your staff, with the people that you meet in Kathmandu along the way. You're not, you're paying attention the whole way. You're not starting to just pay attention when you get on the ice the first time, you know? Um, and I think a lot of reason, I think that's why a lot of people start to take some more expedition type climbing versus, you know, just going to the crag and pushing the grade. It's because we do, appreciate that whole experience like we actually appreciate the packing part at home too right it's like this kind of this this cool process of like oh i took some notes about what i needed this last time around and like that's part of the experience and formulating the team that you know you can hang out with and deal with difficult times with sitting at base camp in bad weather for two months like there's actually part of us that likes that you know yeah and i i certainly have and i think that's part of why i have been a successful guide and have enjoyed it yeah, imagine some sense of pride of like being able to run a trip smoothly involves all these little micro processes and creating relationships with people along the way too right yeah i, t- I and i that was always equal parts to me um you know getting to know the people i'm working with there yeah the people i'm guiding like 
I mean, very. I, I've been pretty people-oriented a lot of my career and life, and I really enjoy that experience of getting to know those people along the way and that whole process of it. Um, whether it's the local staff, whether it's my clients, whether it's co-guides, just people in general is a huge part of the climbing experience for me. And not to say that I don't love going out with just one other person or solo at times. There are two different parts that are both equally compelling yeah. to me. And, and yeah, I do love the logistics and the expeditions and the 24-7 with adults. You never have that experience. So many people in the world never have those experiences once you're out of youth and going to camps where you're actually immersed with other you know, adults and, and involved with the challenge or experience. And so I think I, that, that part's always held a lot of value to me and I've always enjoyed, but that whole large logistics and like yeah. getting the team going and getting to know other people and trying to figure out the power structures and making the decisions or how the decisions, it was always really exciting to me actually. And I think it's, it's important to have a love for that because frankly, that's, well, nothing's really in control. But it's one of the few things that you have the most control over on a trip like this. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I mean, going to the Himalaya, going, there's all the other factors, the people and the weather and the environment that are and sometimes conspiring against you. And really all you have is, that's guaranteed is, you know, you have the approach, you know, you have the planning and you know, you have the people that you're going to work with on the way up, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. But you segued into really you know, what happens at the end of that is, is still very fulfilling and exciting. And that is, that is still kind of that adrenaline hook, that focus place of being in the high mountain environment, being in an area where, you know, you don't have control and that, that focus that comes out of, out of putting yourself in that situation. You're wanting to go and find that. And you want to share that experience with other people when you're there too. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I, I mean, there's no question that that Getting all your ducks in a row, working on the logistics, getting a you know setting up a team for success, all that sort of thing. In turn, for me, guiding expeditions, that was that was the real thrill and the challenge. And then you you know you get what's thrown at you, mm-hmm. and that's when it becomes really meaningful and exciting. And yeah. the, I mean, some of the most profound experiences are the ones that haven't worked for whatever reason. Yeah, and right. um, and you know figuring out why and understanding yourself better and understanding what you've what mistakes you might have made or or what things what what went well what didn't but really just um you know being being in those for my clients too um particularly guiding big expeditions when things don't go right when the weather doesn't go right when you know knowing that you are not in control and life throws things at you that you can't control you know, it's the most profound experience for a lot of those people, especially when they haven't had that a lot. They've been in the mountains and they've only been guided and they've had a lot of success. A charmed life yeah. in the mountains up to that point. Yeah. yeah. And I imagine that happens on a fair occasion. Yeah. With some of the clients that you get up there. Um, do you think some of the guides burn out pretty early too, without, you know, if, without having that ability to embrace just the process and the relationships leading up to the climbing. I mean, have you seen a fair number of guys who just kind of burn out on the scene so quickly because they just have no patience for it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, you've got to love people if you're going to yeah. guide. There are not a lot of guides, but there's certainly a big chunk of guides that I think really just prefer climbing and don't really love getting to know other people and mm-hmm. understanding other people's experiences and that sort of thing. And, 
which nothing against them, but I think that does make it hard to be a guide. And so yeah. I think you really do have to be willing to sort of, you know, wrestle around in the mud with people's hopes and dreams and emotions and all that stuff can be, right. you know, pretty, pretty tough if you're not sort of naturally inclined to be a, know, be a psychologist. Be, yeah. <laughs> so be pretty forgiving. Of people. <laughs> yeah. And it, I mean, you mentioned that it's, it's very interesting to be there with those people when they're having kind of their preconceived notions being broken down or actually having their sense of control being broke down in that environment and having to deal with loss or having to give up on an objective. Um, but I imagine there are times in, in your case too, where there were many things that, that happened in your career that were unexpected that you had to deal with yourself. And, and, and after enough trips, I think you're a person that I, I'm sure appreciates this. It's that, you know, that obstacle awesome oftentimes is the way it's like really where the richest experience for you has happened. Um, and at the time it just seems like a tragedy or a terrible thing that had happened at the time. And, and I think for some people that's this, this period where the, the romance of that activity, like I'm, I'm, I'm guiding on the tallest mountains of the world. I'm living this amazing adventurous life that I've always wanted to live. I'm getting paid for it. Um, but then, something kind of happens and you're like, wow, this isn't, this isn't perfect. Or this is, this is actually kind of terrible. Um, is, was there a period of time where, where something struck you like all of a sudden, or was there, we talked earlier before about this kind of concept of this hedonic adaptation while we're sitting outside, like, or is it, does it just become less exciting because it becomes routine after a while? Like, oh, I'm in the Western coom again, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think for me it was a. I, th I think I, it's definitely obviously things have changed for me over time. Yeah, and I think it's been a combo of things. Like, you know, there were it just so happened that um, my son was born in 2010. I went back to Everest in let's see, two, I was there in 2008. I was there in 2010, right before he was born, up until a week before he was born. Back on Everest and Maklu in 2011 and 2012. 2013, I didn't go. And then 2014, I was back on Everest when the big accident mm -hmm. happened. And so when that accident happened... Um, For people that are not familiar, what can you remind them what the accident yeah, was in 2014? So in, yeah, in 2014, there was the big icefall collapse in the Kumbu Icefall early on in the season where 16 Nepalis died. And um, so that, I was, I was part of the um, big Everest commercial film crew that year. Yeah. And, um, and it, I mean, it was a profound accident obviously and it affected everybody a lot that was there but it, it, it wasn't a game changer or anything it didn't it, it, it wasn't that incident um or the earthquake that sort of the next year in 2015 mm -hmm. i was there for the big earthquake um i wasn't on everest but i was guiding in nepal when the earthquake happened and um those were both pretty profound but they were it, it was part of sort of things that were already changing for me having a son um, the first couple of years he was born, it was kids at that age are so young. It was hard to really relate to, but as he's gotten older, it seemed a lot more of a priority to be around. And, you know, it was getting a little bit routine. I had already decided I didn't want to go back for big groups on Everest, um, to guide big groups. I would go back and potentially guide one-on-one -on -one groups or one-on-one -on -one teams. But I knew that I didn't want to have Everest be a annual thing for me mm -hmm. i knew that fairly early on and so i already knew that sort of it was like oh i've done this a lot of years i've been on nine ever expeditions at this point yeah i'd been on six uh my son was born 
I knew I didn't want to make it an annual event the rest yeah. of my life. And so it's just sort of the, yeah. everything kind of occurred kind of coincidentally um, in terms of those accidents. It even reinforced the idea that, yeah, I don't really want to make this yeah. a, a annual thing. It was tough for me, though, in 2015 to not, well, actually 2014. So every year, as you probably relate, Terry, because you're a ER doc, I was acting as a guide. And so I was heavily involved with any accidents that were happening. Yeah. We all were. I mean, every guy there, if, if they're compelled to, and motivated to, to help if things go wrong, people want to be involved and want to be helping, being part of the solution if there is a problem. In 2014, I was um, shooting for that Everest commercial film. And so when that accident happened, it was the first time that I hadn't like run up into the icefall to help out. I sat there and filmed the whole thing, mm. sort of a bystander. And it was a totally different experience. And um, why don't you and, elaborate on that a little bit? Because I'm, I'm putting myself in your shoes and your boots right now in that situation. And it it was, um, you know, I think on the one hand I was like, oh, yeah, you know, it's I guess my role's changing here. I've always been one of the guides that's been involved and going to help out. Um, and I think there's something about being completely involved with rescues or body recoveries or all the stuff that ends up happening on Everest. Um, that maybe insulates you a little bit from the experience. And so when you're actually standing and watching it, yep. as I did with a camera, it was, it certainly was a different experience. Yeah. Um, and similarly in 2015, when the earthquake happened, I was down in Tame um, when that earthquake happened. And then I heard about what had happened to base camp, you know, and I had the same, I had a reaction sort of a similar reaction where it was like, oh, I'm glad I wasn't there. And at the same time, you have this feeling like, oh, that's who I am. That's who I've been for so long. I just, you know, I, I do wish I was there helping out because I don't know what else, how else to approach it. That's how it happens. So for me, you know, it's actually the earthquake. Um, the earthquake rattled me. I'd never had any accidents I'd have been involved with in the mountains after all the tragedy that I'd been involved with. Nobody on my teams that I was ever responsible for, but responding to other accidents. Nothing in the mountains bothered me the way the earthquake did. And I think that's because I kind of, I'm like, yeah, we all bought into this. You know, even the guys that are being hired and they're working, like I expect that things can go wrong. And so even 2014, I didn't have that strong reaction. But with the earthquakes, in those villages with all the aftershocks and the anxiety that everybody was feeling, all the locals were just super spooked all the time. Yeah. You started hearing about landslides. You didn't, you know, it was like you, you didn't know what was safe. And to experience that with locals for a couple weeks was super unsettling, much more than any mountain experience I've had. And so... Um, the earthquakes got me rattled for a while, for sure. I came, you know, I kept going. I stayed in Kathmandu for a month, or Nepal for a month afterwards, and helped out. Um, worked on the Juniper Fund, yeah. which I know we're going to talk about. Yeah. Um, came back in 2016. You know, I had four trips not long after the earthquakes, and every time I was back, there were um, small aftershocks, and and they definitely. I'd I think, you. Yeah, it's take it's taken like a year and a half, you know, to not have that even to not to have that on my mind when I'm back in Nepal. Yeah. I mean, you think about it, but for a while it was like, Oh, where's the flashlight and where's the door? And yeah. you know, where do you go? And I think it's a, that's a really important point that you brought up. And I, I, 
there are certainly corollaries with medicine too. I mean, you're you're putting yourself, so say in the ER or in your your climbing, you are you're putting yourself in this paradigm that you're accepting this risk. Like you understand that the serac could fall or this patient could go into cardiac arrest. And you're kind of you're prepped yourself for that. Like you're primed for that and you're expecting it. And then when you become experienced, you actually deal with that over and over and over again and you actually become used to it. And so that it's mechanical. You know, it's yeah, it's automatic, and um, and in some ways that is a reflection of your skill. But when you see people that are the innocent smiling faces that are serving you tea on the way up, you know, and dishing you out your favorite plate of hot momos on the way down when you're done with your expedition, and you see their homes totally destroyed, I think that really affects you in a much more profound way. And and interestingly, as tragic as it is, a lot more impactful than so many of the hours that you may have spent in the ice fall or on the Lhotse face or even on the summit of Everest up to that point, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, I've, I'm used to seeing people freak down the mountains, but you're, and that's part of what you're doing as guide mm-hmm. is bringing them back to right. to sort of a base, baseline. But, and I've seen locals and Sherpas freaked out in the ice fall when there's been accidents. Yeah. And that's, it's like, that's not... It's like, well, yeah, we're supposed to be because yeah. something just happened, you know, they, they, right. that's part of your context right. and your environment. But when you see the, all the people in the villages super freaked out right. and shaking and like, and the earth's not supposed to be moving. Yeah. The ice fall's supposed to move. The earth's right. not. <laughs> right. I think it was, it definitely was like a whole different experience. Right. And you, you brought up the Juniper Fund in the context of that. And let's, let's, let's go and address that a little bit. But, you know, the Juniper Fund started before those events, both in 2014 and 2015 uh, with the ice fall and the, and the earthquake. But it seemed like the earthquake was uh, certainly something that very much, uh, it cemented your, your, desire to move on with that vehicle and, and the nonprofit and, and do the work that it represented. But tell me a little bit about the origins and how it, how it began before those tragic incidents. Yeah. So I, the, the, the first experience I had with knowing someone well, um, and tragedy on Everest was in 2006, um, there was a guy, there were, there were three guys who died in the ice fall in 2006 with a large Chirac collapse. Okay. I was in the ice fall just below them um, with uh, guiding for Alpine Ascents with Lac Burita, Sherpa as our Sirdar. Mm-hmm. And the wife of one of those guys had worked for me on a bunch of treks in the kitchen. Okay. And she was pregnant. And so yeah. I had known her pretty well. Her father worked on a lot of expeditions with me as well. And so when that incident occurred in 2006, um, my wife and I just uh, told her, her name is Nima Lamu, told her that we'd help out with the education of that unborn child. After he passed away, it dawned on us that was a, something that we could help contribute. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that was the first personal experience. And so I, we had already decided that we were going to do that. And then Melissa Arnott and I, um, started working together in 2008. I had a client that I guided on Mount Everest in 2004, and he had gotten to know um, Melissa on Mount Rainier. Mm-hmm. He wanted to come back and climb Everest a second time and wanted Melissa to join as well. And so the three of us became a, a team to climb the mountain in 2008. And so that's how Melissa and I got to know each other was um, on Mount Everest in 2008. And then Melissa and I ended up doing... Um, uh, some more climbing together, and then in 2010, 
she was on Barunse and the guy that she was with, Chuang Nima, yeah, died. Chuang Nima, yeah. right. And so she, and so then, um, you know, we had we had been on a uh, few expeditions together, and her first Himalayan expedition had been with me, and so. Um, I ended up speaking to her while she, I was at home, she was on Brunse and we ended up speaking by satellite phone and okay. she, and sort of, um, helping her through that whole experience. Um, her explaining what had happened, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what to do. And, um, me having been there more years than her was, uh, I think in having had other tragedies happen, was able to give a little insight, but then she learned a ton by going through that experience with that family. And so... Um, after that happened with Chuang, um, Melissa mentioned starting a nonprofit and we decided through both of our experiences and the fact that we had teamed up through Eddie Bauer at that point, um, to go ahead and make it formal. But at that point it was like, Hey, we'll have some guided clients that would probably be excited about helping out and we can help a few families. But so it started, you know, in a pretty small way, not understanding what, would happen in the intervening years, especially with the big tragedies. So anyway, in 2012, we formally um, incorporated in Washington state. Mm-hmm. Do you think it was partially a way for her? I mean, I, obviously I could talk to her on myself <laughs> later on, but I mean, it was a way of, of healing for both of you, you think uh, to, to do this a way of, or was it because you had this seed planted and this was another opportunity uh, to help that grow further based on your experience uh, previously in, in 2006? Well, it was so, so those, those personal experiences are the reason that it even became a thought. Yeah. Right. But then really the, the, the real compelling reason to actually do it and put the time and effort into it was that through both of our experiences, we started learning about, and I, I went sort of deep into what was going on in the industry. Mm-hmm. And so... The first, you know, so we started. I started, I started looking into okay, how much is the actual insurance? How much are these guys getting if they die? Mm-hmm. I had no idea. I was guiding for a while and didn't yeah. know any of this stuff. I started talking to the outfitters, asking them. They didn't know. They didn't know how much they're paying for insurance. A lot of the big operators, well, we don't know how much we're paying per guy. Mm-hmm. We don't know what they get paid out. And so I started getting deep into all the information, trying to figure out what does the ministry require? What are the trekking agents charging for this Mm -hmm. what could we be what could the coverage be and how much would that cost who are these insurance agents is it private you know how does the ministry verify whether the guys are insured or not and so basically the more we started looking into it and realizing what was actually being paid out and what people were paying for meaning the foreigners coming over um, we started to learn a lot and it just, you know, it, it, it's kind of one of those things where once you learn enough and realize what the situation is, it's kind of hard to turn and walk away from it. And so we felt like, you know, I, I, I totally, I felt like, well, now that we know what's going on, we got to do something. And it was just a matter of asking the questions. Yeah. It was just a matter right. of asking the questions. Nobody really asked a lot of right. those questions. And, it, um, yeah. I started to, and you know, a lot of this is. People probably are familiar with some of these articles, but um, in 2012, as I started learning about all mm-hmm. this stuff, um, I was part of uh, an Eddie Bauer expedition. We were going to try to climb the West Ridge, mm-hmm. and Outside Magazine sent over a rider, Grayson Schaefer. And as we sat at base camp, I started talking to Grayson yeah. about all of this, and and um, you know he found 
found it super interesting and compelling too. And so he decided to write an article and went back and started asking a lot of the same questions. And so visiting families and mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And so he was able to, you know, discover a lot of information, um, even further than what I had done. Yeah. And so we sort of collaborated in that way. And, you know, a lot of it was to be honest, you know, and a lot of those trekking agents were charging a lot of money for, um, these premiums mm-hmm. and really the accidental death insurance is what it was. And at that point it was only f- the families would get $5,000 Yeah, and $5,000 is essentially what a lot of those guys are making. Yeah. And so it's really, and then they're gone and they're not, you know, so it's, it, um, it, it seemed pretty inadequate. Plus we were finding that a lot of the tricking agents were charging essentially what could have covered them for $15,000 Yeah, and not, really informing their customers customers what their practices were yeah Yeah, it was very it was not very transparent it's become part of what we're proud about with the juniper fund is that a lot of that information has slowly come out it's come out through articles it's come out through people asking more questions um and so i think there is more transparency about that and Mm -hmm. um, i think the trekking agents are more transparent about it and more easily able to explain you know, what they're paying for, what it covers, and, and the ministry's asked for more as well. And so that's slowly sort of notching up. Right. I think it's it's an interesting story in that it, it really demonstrates the value of what sort of filter you're wearing when you're you're experiencing these trips. I mean, you, you go there year after year after year. We previously talked about how so much of the lead up to the actual climbing was a, was a big part of your reward and spending time with the people and the families. And yet until you had this switch and this other filter where you were now wearing, okay, I'm, I'm representing the Juniper fund and this nonprofit with this mission. I'm going to start asking these totally different questions and engaging these people in a different way to find out really what are the repercussions to these families by losing their loved ones in, in you know, the high altitude mountain working industry. Um, and all of a sudden you find out all this information you just, you never knew. Right. And nobody had acquired to really ask in depth before. And I think that's, you know, unfortunately, maybe born out of tragedy, but it's a pretty important, you know, transition point for you two in, in that in that nonprofit. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I think it just takes, you, you know, you, you. I think that anyone, you got to be careful careful what you wish for. And yeah, what you're getting into, but <laughs> what you're but once about, you yeah. sort of like, you know, you go over and you turn over the rock, yeah, and see what's under you. You have a hard time turning away or not doing yeah. something about it, um, and so. Yeah, so that was the genesis, and and we've and you know experiencing. I think that is pretty rare that we've all had. If we've all spent enough time in the mountains, we've all had people close to us pass away, yeah. or people we knew, and yeah. um, we know how painful that is as as friends and human beings and families. And it's obviously the same for the people in Nepal. Okay. But I think that it's. Um, but we don't have the we don't have the chance to see that. You know, it's hidden inside homes as yeah. we all, whenever, you know, as human beings, we're in pain, we kind of hide in our own homes and it's hard to, to, uh, to reach out. But I think obviously, particularly when we are foreigners and we're in that culture and yeah. you don't see that. And I think that, um, that's the side of our experiences with the Juniper Fund that we've both seen and experienced that's, um, makes it a lot more real over there for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. And for the listeners that aren't as familiar with the the Juniper Fund, and certainly we'll provide a link to the organization and uh, the nonprofit 
website. But where do you see, I guess currently you talked about this brainstorm phase and, and the initial investigation. What do you see as, as kind of the primary mission of the Juniper Fund at this point leading on? Yeah, so we, you know, as we've experimented since 2012 um, and then in the 2014 accident, tragedy, and the 2015 earthquake, both of those really gave us a lot of visibility. We raised a lot of money. It put us, it, it established the foundation to where we really could be in a position to execute our vision, which is primarily to provide relief funds for families so that they can get back on their feet, they can have some time to adjust and not have to worry about paying the bills for a number of years. And so our our primary program that we started out with was this cost of living relief fund so that um, we gave discretionary funds um, each year for five years after um, a tragedy. And that's to be able to pay the bills and Mm -hmm. again, spend it on what they need and get back on their feet. So that was the primary thing. And once we were able to cover that, and raise enough money that we know we can continue to do that into the future, which we are in the position now, and we've put away money to start an endowment. Um, the next phase, and it's the phase that we're most excited about and that we're doing, we're going, we've put a lot of effort and energy into in the last couple of years, and we're, this year in particular in 2017, we've put a, um, a big focus on now providing the skills, the training, the education to be able to have these widows or other family members be able to find a new source of income. So we want to provide that relief period for five years, and then we want to provide people with skills and education and business grants so that they can start their own businesses and start generating their own income going forward. And so that's really the big push. We also have some education programs. We have some undergraduate scholarships. We have some other... um, uh, education that we pay for that's more vocational based a lot of English yeah. classes um, uh, people come to us we do a lot of in, of interfacing with the families finding out what they're interested in and pairing them up with the right kind of training right. so <clears throat> it's really driven by the women and the families of what yeah. they want to be doing and then and then trying to make it happen and so really our big push is going to be this a, a component for income generation mm-hmm. after someone's been lost. We don't want to expand this relief program. We think it's really effective the way it is, but it needs to be for a finite amount of time. Mm-hmm. And then we want to be able to provide the ability for them to then make their own income. Right, right. And um, and how do you recruit or how do you find out about families through word of mouth through um, other guiding companies, people you work with in the past, or just awareness mm-hmm. now within it's the guiding community? Now because of the Juniper Bund has been established for so long. Yeah, it's awareness now. And we, we basically, I mean, we can get the, we get the, we have a full-time Nepali employee and she has all the ministry records. Mm-hmm. She's interfacing with all the trekking agents. We obviously, just because of who we are, we hear about the accidents. Um, but we, because we started in 2012, but weren't in, we weren't recognized by the IRS in the United States as a tax exempt organization until right at the end of 2013. And so, from the end of 2013 till now, we cover with our relief fund program every single expedition worker that passes away. Okay. So it's not need it's not needs based. They don't have to come to us. We just every single one if they're on an expedition permit, they're covered by us. Um, and so we have covered all of those. We can't retroactively right. provide those funds. We just you know it's not the scope. But we are 
um, anyone prior to 2013, families that had someone um, lost in the mountains, we are providing the vocational training and the business grants for those. They're just not part of our cost of living program. Well, I think obviously there'd be many people inspired by the story and the and the nonprofit are going to be interested to go to the website and learn more about it. But uh, obviously there's been some challenges with it as well. I mean, is there something that stands in your mind just as like advice to people? I mean, what was the biggest eye opener for you in, in starting this project and, and being involved with the nonprofit? Well, I think like anybody probably that started a nonprofit or an organization or startup is just the biggest eye opener was how much time it takes. Yeah. Um, and how much time it takes to, play with different programs, try to become effective at what we're doing. We have, we had a, like a support group for these widows Mm -hmm. that we tried that didn't work. We've had a couple other things that we've tried that haven't really worked all that well. And so I think, you know, that trial and error and trying to get feedback and trying to interface with families, trying to figure out what's going on with these families. We actually know all these families pretty well. And we, and of course there's familial, there's family issues, there's, you know, interesting parts that we all, yeah, you're just one piece. You're just one piece. Yeah. And so we, I mean, it's just, it's a lot, it's a lot of time and gathering all the information, um, took a lot of time the first couple of years. Um, you know, I think just the amount of time it takes to make it work effectively and just to get sort of our feet under our ground, under, under ourselves. And I, and, I, and I imagine at some point there's or at sometimes there may have been some disappointment. I imagine there might be a beneficiary that ends up deciding to leave Nepal, right? For livelihood someplace else. Right. And yeah. And I that think that can happen too. Right? Yeah, totally. And I think actually one of the, yeah, one of the things that was tough is to feel like you're coming in trying to be incredibly helpful and knowing on the one hand, you're just seen as that you're seen with suspicion. I mean, there's a lot, those guys have had a lot of promises. A lot of those families in Nepal have had a lot of foreigners come through there and promise Mm -hmm. things and not have them happen. And so understandably they are in positions where they're trying to, you know, do the best they can for their family and get whatever they can if somebody's offering it. And that can come off sometimes as feeling a little bit, I don't know, just um, aggressive, pushy, um, and that we can offer um, something, and so it's—I mean, it's—it's it's all just it, my my experience with it is, it's a great, it—it's sort of like, um, it—it's a great study in just human nature and realizing our my own human nature, their human nature, and everybody's just trying to do the best they can for their own family. It's human nature to be suspicious. Yeah, it's human nature to be suspicious. It's human nature to try to get the best result you can for yourself and mm-hmm. and um and wonder if the guy who's trying to give you something is trying to get the best result for him too right <laughs> yeah right totally <laughs> right and so you know it's to, that i think that that's the biggest that's probably been the biggest challenge aside from there's just the amount of work the yeah. biggest challenge is to try to um get some buy-in and start right. to trust us and right. start to understand that um, they can have patience and we'll be there and right. hey yeah we will come back and do this vocational right. training or if you start right. you know so I think um, and that's the most satisfying too to make to see that turn the corner 
Right. And that's what I was just going to ask. What's the biggest surprise as far as satisfaction? We were, we were talking before outside having dinner. Like there's sometimes these moments in your life thinking, am I, am I really doing enough? <laughs> like, am I doing what I'm meant to do? Or I feel like there's something else I can do with my time or my time. I mean, do you feel like this wasn't something that you'd planned for, but it, it happened. And, and I mean, are you feeling more fulfilled with your work and time in Nepal now because of it? I mean, certainly I believe you would be, but yeah, for sure. I think I'm really, I'm really, I'm really excited and satisfied and proud and happy about where yeah. we've gotten to. I yeah. think that it, it, you know, it's been six years now, and there's always this feeling like you're not doing it well enough. You, you know, we need to do this. We need to do that. You're constantly changing things, trying to figure out, okay, how's it going to work best? Do we need to change this in terms of a program? Do we need to? do something differently in terms of how all the roles and responsibilities are divided up. And so you're kind of, you know, it always feels like you're sort of like treading water, but then when you look back, um, and in hindsight, it's like, Oh wait, it, it, it's working. It worked. It's working. <laughs> it worked. Yeah, yeah. It's working. We're at a point where we're, you know, totally financially viable. We've got a good plan in terms of how to execute and have, um, you know, part-time employee here right now and a full-time employee yeah. in Nepal and be able to raise all the money we need to raise. And it's like, Oh, I guess that's success, you know, and we're impacting people over there. Yeah. There's nothing more exciting than seeing, um, a couple of these women in particular right now who are really thriving with their businesses and are able to make money on their own. And yeah, they're doing it, you know, a hundred percent, um, by themselves. They have a couple of them have employees and it's super cool to see that. Yeah. So it almost seemed like you were struggling with having faith in the process when it was, was it starting? I mean, is that, if you could go back and talk to your younger self now, six years back, seven years back, I mean, do you feel like that's the piece of advice you'd give yourself? So like, oh yeah. Hang in there. Like, is this actually going to, this, this might really work. Yeah. And I think that's okay. To I think have. that a lot of the things in my life, like, <laughs> yeah. that faith in the process is tough. Yeah, and it is. Though, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it, it's, it's pretty key and, um, you know, we've we've stuck with it, and so I guess we had yeah. faith in the process. But you definitely doubt that sometimes. Yeah. But mountaineering wouldn't be very interesting if it was a guaranteed success from the get go, would it? Yeah, that's right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. Any, uh, I mean, uh, just dovetailing off that, I, I, there's a lot of people may be listening to this, thinking about their own projects and places that they may go. I mean, that maybe addresses a little bit of advice that you would give to a younger person thinking about trying to give back to a community that that means a lot to them or they've adventured or traveled to a lot. I mean, is there any other piece of advice you think based on your experience that you would give to a young college student that you maybe met, you know, down the street while you're here in Wallingford and is talking about doing some volunteer work in Nepal? Um, you have to follow your heart if you feel compelled to do something. At the same time, I think you have to be pretty realistic about what you commit to early on or yeah. what what's really feasible. Um, and so I think that, like, I would always tell somebody, hey, if you feel compelled to be involved, then figure out a way to do it. Because I think you have to follow your heart in that way. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can deny that. Um, I think that you, uh, I think that you'd be doing your own sort of self uh, injustice by not following that. But at the same time, I think you need to pick how you do that. And so in terms of that being realistic, you know, I've had people come to me and say, Hey, I want to start a nonprofit about, you know, X, Y, Z. And, you know, now I can give some pretty realistic advice about yeah. whether that's the right thing you're do to do or not. And so I think it's more about trying to pick how you go about, um, making an impact 
whether rather than if you do something or not yeah you got to follow your heart and do something and if um you know and take some maybe some trial and error to figure out what that is but i think by um you know having faith in the process you'll find something and try and you know maybe more limited projects getting involved with some other organ that's already there I think, you know, I think asking a lot of questions of a lot of people that have already been down that road would yeah. be super important. Follow your heart, do something, faith in the process. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But be careful how, 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 how deep you dive without much knowledge. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, how can uh, people keep in touch with your work and, and find out what the Juniper Fund's up to uh, next and connect with you or support what you guys are doing? Yeah, they can follow us on um, our websites, thejuniperfund.org, and we also have an Instagram feed and a, mm-hmm. a Facebook presence as well. And um, it's pretty limited, but definitely giving us a, sending us an email, and we'd love to hear from anybody that has any interest and wants to hear more about it. Great, awesome. Well, cool. Thanks, David. Thanks for your time, and uh, appreciate hosting me at your house. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> Lovely night to be here. Yeah. All right. Sweet. Okay, well, once again, I'd like to thank Dave for his generosity and time over the last few months in putting this podcast together. To learn more about the Juniper Fund, please go to thejuniperfund.org. And of course, please consider leaving a donation. You can also go to our site at theadventureactivist.org and click on the podcast tab to find out more about David and see some touching photos and vignettes highlighting some of the very people supported by their important work. Finally, I'd like to thank you, for listening to episode three of the Adventure Activist podcast. If this episode inspired and added value to your life and passions, please consider making a donation at our site. You can also find us on patreon.com. Even a dollar an episode would be incredible. We hope you've been with us from the beginning, but if not, check out the other episodes on our site, on iTunes, or SoundCloud. If you have just a few spare minutes, give us a good review, share with your friends, Your show of support means so much. Thanks all, and keep adventuring.